You are listening to an Enoch Pratt Free Library podcast. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey starts here. Here. librarian at the Pratt, and I want to welcome you and thank you for making time to be with us tonight. This is going to be a really delightful evening. I'm so excited to hear Lori Jaquila and Nancy Naomi Carlson read from and talk about their work. To continue the pleasure of this evening, I hope that everyone will consider purchasing books by Lori and Nancy. My colleague Sophia is going to post links to both Lori's Wicked Woman prize-winning book and Nancy's most recent book of poems in the chat or comments. And if you follow those links, you can make your purchase at the Ivy Bookshop, which is a great Baltimore bookstore. Um, These books are also available at other places. We have people joining us tonight, both on Zoom and on Facebook. If you have a question or comment for us, you can put it either in the Zoom chat or the Facebook comments, and we're monitoring both those places. So now it's my special pleasure to introduce to you Clarinda Harris, the longtime editor of Brickhouse Books. Clarinda Harris is Professor Emerita of English at Towson University and the author of many books, most recently, The White Rail, Innumerable Moons, and Ash Wedding. Clarinda's poems and short stories are widely anthologized. Her work in Maryland prisons and her long editorship at Brickhouse Books are examples of the generosity and energy with which she uses her gifts to empower others in and through art. I think of her as a kind of good fairy who brings the shimmer of grace and possibility with her wherever she goes on our local scene. So please help me to welcome Clorinda Harris. Oh, Shailene. Hello? I, am, I, am I on? You're on. Oh, okay, great. I um, thank you so much. I, 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 I am I'm actually almost in tears, but I also have a cold. So if you see, I'm not always in tears. If you see me blowing my nose, uh, thank you so much. Um, yeah, Brickhouse is about to celebrate its 50th year of corporate existence. And uh, I'm very proud to introduce to you, Dorit Carroll, who is the inventor and the innovator and the sponsor and the benefactor of the Wicked Woman uh, poetry competition. Um, First, I'm going to read her formal bio, which is very impressive. In fact, I even had to to trim it down just a way. Uh, Dorit Carroll is a native of Washington, D.C. She received her undergraduate and law degrees from Georgetown University, Dorit is the winner of Harbor Review's 2020 Laura Lee Washburn Chapbook Prize for her chapbook, A Meditation on Purgatory. Her collection, Glottal Stop, was published um, by Brickhouse in 2013, and her chapbook, Sorry You Are Not an Instant Winner, was published in 2017 by Caddy Wampus. She has been nominated for a Pushcart Prize, and best of the net. And now just some informal bits that are from my heart. Dorit became one of my closest friends through her poetry. She, I had never read her work. I didn't know her name uh, until I, she submitted a marvelous manuscript to Brickhouse. And I swiftly learned that her wit, her wisdom, even her angers, even her, even her, well, definitely her passions are, are what make us good friends, as well as make her a wonderful, marvelous poet in her own right. And she is a wicked woman in the best possible sense. She broke the mold with her intelligence and her talent. And as I've told her before, if, if she weren't 
the age of my daughter, I would think of her as my younger, smarter sister. All right. Um, I can't possibly live up to that. Thank you, Clorinda. Um, so yeah, Brick House is behind everything you're seeing tonight. Um, I had this idea to do two things, which is honor my mother, who was a real case. And I also looked around and saw that there were not a lot of poetry prizes devoted to women telling stories about women. Um, so I had this idea and I went to Clorinda, who fortunately was fabulously enthusiastic about it and has created one beautiful book after another. Um, and we've had wonderful judges. And this year, I was very grateful when Nancy Naomi Carlson decided that she would do the judging for us. And um, I was down on my knees praying after I read Lori's manuscript that she would choose it. And I had no problem. She chose it promptly. Um, Nancy is a very well-known poet and translator, both in Washington and nationally. Um, Nancy twice received an NEA Literature Translation Grant, and she has published 12 titles, eight of which are translated. And in few of Violet Seagull 2019 is her own work, not a translation, and it was called A New and Noteworthy Poetry Title by the New York Times. Her most recent book in translation is Lan Mabakus, As Long as Trees Take Root in the Earth, and her own work has appeared in the Georgia Review, the Paris Review, and Poetry. So I will now proceed to hand you off to Nancy. Thank you, Dorit, and uh, thank you for allowing me to judge and Clorinda that you entrusted in me this this um, this responsibility. And when you judge a, a poetry contest, it's an inexact science, but everything comes through the judge through the judge's lens and you may not know what the judge likes. Uh, sometimes a judge herself doesn't know what she likes, but anyone who cites French poetry, playwright, the theater of the absurd. I was a French language major in college. So Samuel Beckett is one of those writers who writes about the condition humaine, the human condition, and how life doesn't always dole out the nicest things and yet um, we must live it. And the quote that Laurie had was, um, I can't go on, I go on. That's a Samuel Beckett quote. And the book really makes this come alive, this idea. And I related so much to it that, that it, it just sold me from that moment on and not just her sassy voice and not just her, her wit and her narrative poems. And this is what I wrote about the book. In this collection of beautifully wrought sprawling narratives and pithy poems, Laurie Tequila examines what it means to be happy, even in a world where, quote, crows do their work, teach us everything, no matter how terrible or beautiful is temporary. Her versatile voice ranges from existential to badass, quoting such disparate sources as Samuel Beckett, Hemingway, and even blueberry muffins channeling Shakespeare. Quote, words are my lifeline, she confesses in book Save My Life, a four-line poem. I lock the bathroom door and read in the bathtub. If I stop and fall asleep, I'll drown. This also readable and essential book will keep you engaged right to the end. So it gives me great pleasure now to introduce Laurie. She is the author of two poetry collections and four memoirs, including Belief is Its Own Kind of Truth, Maybe, which received the 2016 Saroyan Prize from Stanford University. Her work has been published in the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Chicago Tribune, the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette, and more. Recently, actress Kristen Bell chose Jaquila's New York Times modern love essay, The Plain Unmarked Box Arrived, to perform on the Times Modern Love podcast. Jaquila writes a monthly column, Stories of Our Neighbors, for Pittsburgh Magazine, and directs the undergraduate 
Creative and Professional Writing Program at the University of Pittsburgh's Greensburg campus. She lives in her hometown of Trafford, Pennsylvania with her husband, the author Dave Newman and their children. Welcome, Lori. Thank you so much, Nancy. Thank you so much, Nancy. Thank you so much, Clorinda and Dorit and Shailene and Sophia and everyone at the Pratt Library for having us here. I wish we were all together in a room because I want to hug everyone. So one of these days, one of these days. Um, so I'm going to start with a really short poem um, called Remembering the World is Beautiful because it's important to remember that the world's beautiful. <laughs> Remembering the world is beautiful. When he first tasted a salt and vinegar potato chip, my one-year-old son dropped to his knees and yelled, too tasty, then tried to eat the whole bag. So I started there because I wanted to follow up with two poems about roadkill, so I figured they would balance each other out. <laughs> um, this is a poem called Set Rate Per Body. Growing up, I never saw roadkill. A government worker was paid to take the bodies away and nobody's day was ruined by death. It stopped in the eighties, I think, when the president declared ketchup a vegetable in school lunches and the bodies started piling up. Now some states hire contract workers. In Pennsylvania, roadkill collectors get $15 an hour or a set rate per body. Gruesome but steady work, the employment site JobMonkey calls it. Such jobs require stomachs with no time for sympathy and arms that can lift 50 pounds. The government used to care about people, my father said, when we started seeing dead cats and deer on the road near our house. Now everything's corrupt. My father, veteran of wars and radiation and chemo, knew violence. He's been dead many years now. In our neighborhood, cars drive the bodies into pavement. Crows do their work, teach us everything, no matter how terrible is beautiful and temporary. Last week, headed home from an 11-hour day where my students worked to make the world good, if only on a page, I hit a raccoon. The thud its body made under my wheels was the thud a body makes under wheels. I looked in my rearview mirror and saw the shadow. I couldn't see if it suffered. I couldn't see how long it took. The next morning and the next and today, I drive by as the corpse dissolves, flesh into pavement, and think, I did that. This is my fault. And this next poem is connected to that poem, um, also roadkill based. Um, but there is a line in this poem that I want to retract. And it says, I'm still afraid of spiders. And I realized um, I'm not. I, I, I said to my students the other day, I said, I used to be terrified of spiders. And the older I get, the less likely I am to want to kill anything. Um, so I take spiders out of the house or I leave them just be and even ants sometimes. And I don't know what that is, but I think it comes with age, which a lot of these poems deal with that. So, um, and this is called, I suppose I could move the body of the dead thing in the road, climb out of my car with a shovel and bag, give it a decent burial, but I don't. Each day I drive by and clock the dead thing as it gets smaller and smaller. I try to forget my car, my wheels, my rush until there's only a disembodied stain, loose fur, then nothing but a tire mark where I swerved, evidence of an accident, a blameless mistake. Mortality can feel like science, some, something petri dish to study, something separate from living. I had a biologist friend once. He liked me to drive him around and look for roadkill. When we found a good specimen, he'd yell, pull over, pull over, and I'd pull over, and he'd get out and shovel the body into a bag he'd toss in the trunk. How excited he was about death and decay. How alive he was in his terrible joy. Another thing, 
He loved me enough to try to cure me of fear. He let a tarantula creep on his arm like the dismembered hand from the Adams family. The Adams family hand was called Thing. Thing lived in a music box and had expressive fingers. The tarantula's name was Sally. She lived in a hamster cage with an exercise wheel. If you let her crawl on you even once, my friend said, you won't be scared of spiders anymore. His idea, fear once known, loses its power, and we, the terrified, go on living our new kind of peace. There are many things people believe that aren't true. This is one of them. Sally the spider looked like a toupee with legs. When I saw her from across the room, I froze. Don't worry, my friend said. If she wants to come see you, she will. They jump, you know. That was nearly 30 years ago. I am still terrified of spiders. About the roadkill? My friend used it to study parasites. All those worlds alive inside the worlds of the dead. One thing goes and another takes its place. As I write this right now in Washington, some politician is plotting death. On the news, some politician will hold up a finger and thumb and show the camera something tiny, a little bit, what he might mean, uranium, what he might mean. Imagine the power of something with a name so simple it can be contained on a teleprompter. Has there ever been a politician in our time whose small hands have not plotted death? Recently, Berkeley was burning, but there was a sale on wine at Costco. It's all corrupt, my father said, when the aircraft carrier dropped him near Hiroshima. I don't know what my father saw. He never told me. He said he gave a woman cigarettes. He gave a man his T-shirt and Timex. He said he wished he had candy to give the kids. Kids like candy, my father said. This year, the groundhog Panskatani Phil saw his shadow, six more weeks of winter, and my own children who like candy, who never met my father, cheer. They think snow days. They think no school. Hope keeps us all moving forward. Outside, it's cold and gray, but no snow. Tomorrow, it's supposed to be 80 degrees here in Pittsburgh in October. Still, driving to work, I don't see one dead thing. Instead, there's a neighbor on his daily walk. He wears a yellow jacket with reflector tape, the kind emergency workers wear. He carries a Macy's bag, big red star on white plastic. He stops again and again to pick up litter on the side of the road. There's so little we can do for one another in this life. Helpless, helpless, Neil Young sang. But that was years ago, before he left his wife for Daryl Hannah, who played a mermaid in a movie once. I believe despite everything, people are good, Anne Frank wrote. When people drew swastikas on the number one train in New York, the politicians were silent, but other people, workers, commuters, used hand sanitizer to wipe the hate away. I've never seen so many people reach into their bags and pockets looking for tissues and Purell, one subway rider said. Everyone just did their job of being decent human beings. Look, however hopeless you feel, However afraid, here's my neighbor, stooped in his yellow jacket, the trash somebody else threw, disappearing into his star-struck bag. And I'll end with, with this one. Um, so, you know, you get to a certain point where nostalgia becomes so part of your daily life. Um, I, uh, I had this friend, Mike, from college, who I don't remember his last name, which is ridiculous. Um, but this is a poem for him, and it's about friendship and dreams. Thank you again for having me and for being here, everyone. After a pitcher of beer at Antler's Pub, I believed I was brave and walked with my friend Mike to the State Street Pier 
Mike was funny, a good drinking buddy, and fearless. He pissed from the edge of the pier, then pole vaulted over the railing and landed hard with both feet right on the lake below. He skidded on the ice and pretended he was surfing. It was probably 10 degrees out. Come on, he said, it's solid, look. He jumped up and down. He did a little dance. What are you afraid of, he said. If he asked me now, I would say everything. But I was young and we'd been drinking and I didn't want to spoil things. I climbed over the railing. I put one foot, then the other on the ice. I took two steps onto the lake and stopped. I waved at Mike and tried not to look worried. Mike laughed and did his best village people. He spelled out Y-M-C with his arms and waited for me to add the A. But I froze. I looked out in the direction I thought was Canada. There were lights out there and a dark lump that may have been land and which was most likely Ohio. Canada seemed exotic and far away. Years later, I joined the airlines and see the world and not the way they promise in the army. Mike would join the army. Neither of us would get the dream. We'd spend many drunk nights dreaming, a houseboat off Key West, a life of reading and drinking and making art. We didn't know that then. That night, the ice felt sturdy. I felt like a god walking on water, though I didn't go further than two steps. Still, I knew what Simone Weil once said. If the desire itself is strong enough, the desire itself will create the light. And so I believed. If I really wanted, I could make it all the way across. Thank you so much. Wow. I get so much more every time I hear Lori read these poems and having read them so many times, but hearing her read them, they really come alive. And thank you, Pratt Library. I wish we were all here in person and Shailene for organizing us and Sophia for keeping us in line with the technology and you audience, thank you for being here with us tonight. I'm gonna to read a few from Violets and um, I call it Violets and uh, then a few new ones too. So I'm gonna start with um, a seasonal poem though it doesn't feel like it's autumn. Um, and it's a seasonal love poem because the love is always in season. Awaking to Vivaldi's Four Seasons. The deer must wonder at this frosted sunrise, salt lick iced over, each linden limb doubled in weight, each blade of grass enclosed in its own sheath that splinters underfoot beneath a patchwork of Halloween leaves gathered like souls unearthed and ambered. He pulls her back under the quilt and fingers the length of her sternum as if burnishing a Chinese flute recovered after 9,000 years made from the wing bone of an extinct bird. Music of the spheres, he whispers and plays the sun at middle chi then Venus, Mercury, the elements of fire, water, and air scale to the end, down to the scorched earth. And this is not a roadkill poem, but Lori um, mentioned cancer, and um, this is a chemo poem, and it's also a seasonal poem. And, um, you know, when you go on a walk and you see a leaf falling from a tree, I never notice, but when the sun is out and there's a shadow, they combine and converge upon one another and become one. So the, this poem was written while in the midst of chemo. And um, actually I had a lovely surprise two weeks ago, uh, Jean Nordhaus, thank you, Jean, called my attention to the fact that the Academy of American Poets had a membership letter. I'm not a member, though I've become a member. And it featured six fall poems. 
and it had a poem by Galway Cannell and something by Tracy K. Smith. So there were poet laureates, there were Nobel Prizes, and there was me with this poem. Intravenous lines. Nothing better to do than watch each drop of cytoxin shimmy down a see-through tube to anoint, anoint the chosen vein. You could turn to the window's maple, smoldering in autumn sun, to catch the precise nanosecond when leaf detaches from limb. Stare down a likely candidate, curled and tinged with brown. A nudge from the wind might encourage the scene along, but even then, if the angle of light isn't just so, you'd miss the shadow of falling leaf many yards beyond the trunk, hitting asphalt and racing towards its embodied self. When leaf touches ground, does its shadow ascend? In these shortened days of fall, I look for signs of renewal. Look how the sun flares bonfire orange and gold as it clings to the west. Listen, can you still hear the freight train's burst of horn displacing the air after the last boxcar slinks behind the furthest hill? Do only laws of physics apply? In old movie frames, I see my mother's young face, gardenia pale against dark curls. She is waving, climbing terrace steps to a lake. I reverse the reel at will, my mother backing down the stairs, then floating up again. And let's see. So, you know, with chemo, there's usually radiation. <coughs> and uh, that's, um, that's something you want to forget. And this poem is, is about how we, we find it really hard to forget the things that, that are so significant in our lives. But that are things we want to forget. The half-life of memory. How stable are memories, the kind you most want to forget, as if forgetting could bring back the whole of the life that was before, before that year when you lost a good chunk of your breast and your hair fell out in clumps down to each forsaken follicle. That year you held your breath as rads infested your body like fleas and your blood counts fell so low you had to loop a surgical mask behind your ears just to breathe. That same year, your father kept asking the date, the year, as he curled into his pain on a hospice pad, strains of Greek played and replayed by the aide who dosed his morphine death. How quickly a body disintegrates. Unlike this memory, it's half-life more than the cobalt lodged in my tumor bed, even more than carbon-14, 10,000 years, it's slow decay. So that was written before everybody was wearing masks. So I felt different because I had my mask on, but now I would not have. Um, you know, everybody always has their new manuscript, always has clip and it's like that. And um, just my new manuscript. And it doesn't really have a title that I'm convinced of yet, but it, it has a publisher. So that's exciting that Seagull Books is going to bring it out, though I'm not holding my breath when that will happen, but I'm, I'm very happy about that. Something a little bit cheerier, but you know, um, I've been married a few times and um, I think this marriage is a keeper. So this is a villanelle with repeated lines and it's called Ode for Three X's. Ex-husbands, like other catastrophes, come in threes. One dead, one fled to New York, and one out of touch. The lost and found blues can be sung in any key. Sometimes the one who is left is the one who leaves first as if years holding close the same grudge 
Ex-husbands, leavers or left, come in threes. If shoe hits glass or glass hits shoe to seal the chuppah vows, it's always the glass that gets crushed. The lost and found blues can be sung. In any key, Erev Shel Shoshanim will not guarantee eternal evenings of roses and coos of doves. Ex-husbands, like celebrity deaths, come in threes, even marriages outside the fold. Years later, a new wedding band, and with luck, the lost and found blues won't be sung in my key, and no one will add to the wake of decrees, voided ketubas, and deeds covered in dust. The lost and found blues can be sung in a brighter key. Ex-husbands, count them, come in threes. And I think I'll read one or two more. Got a curious, even then, that one. You know, you look at why people do what they do for fun and why animals do things for fun. Um, so this is called Why Sturgeon Leap. Could leaping be hardwired into sturgeon brains since the late Cretaceous for no other reason than feeling good? The way cows face north or south when chewing their cud, conforming to the earth's magnetic pull, or flower-carrying crocodiles give their juniors piggyback rides, or the way my 13-month schnoodle chases her tail for several rounds until she catches up then unwinds again. Same motivation that made a Neanderthal weary from hunting or gathering berries stencil dozens of hands on a cave wall in Maltravieso, like the palm prints we call art on school bulletin boards. Same reasons a Homo sapiens picked up a bird bone 42,000 years ago and gouged holes to shape the sound of breath rushing through its length. The first flute left for us to find in a cave or an ancient Sumerian wedged stylus into clay to produce the first cuneiform writing? If it's true that all behavior of living things advances the survival dial a notch, then you'd probably stick to theories of adaptive jumps for seizing airborne prey or enacting a fail-safe courtship display, or gulping in air to maintain even-keeled buoyancy, and you might not even recognize joy as it flies up and splashes you in the face. The last poem I will read, looking at my timer here, which I failed to start, so who knows what time it is, is called Sequoia. And it's kind of a resiliency kind of poem. And I think with what Laurie's been talking about, we, we really have a philosophical kinship going here of how we view the world and life. Um, she may have these beautiful narratives and I may have these shorter poems, but we're all saying the same thing. Man. This human condition is fragile, and yet we persist. I can't go on, I go on. So I'm going to close with sequoia. Remember those big sequoias in the forest fires, and we lost so many of them, and they had names of them, and I just was heartbroken. And this is what led to this poem. Immune to lightning and arctic cold, floods and burning blasts of wind down Sierra Nevada slopes, everything nature can dish out. It was made to last 3,000 years and could have grown to 300 feet, could have survived another half millennium, Earth's largest on Earth, though saddled like the rest of us with time could have succumbed to a natural end, brought down by its own heft, 
to the forest floor, a regal final resting place there among the yellow pines, white firs, there where it had stood before native tribes surrendered its shade, before whale oil was rendered to light, but now weakened by drought, stress, and fire, invaded by beetles carving elegant runes in its bark, it has died. Like Benke, a giant warrior monk standing upright. Thank you. I love that so much. And I give both Lori and Nancy the highest compliment, which I'm, is that I'm scribbling responses to the poems. Um, I want to encourage people to put questions in the chat for either Lori or Nancy. And I understand some of them are already there. So I'm going to look. Um, Lori, what is your poetry writing process like? Do you edit and edit or get it right the first time? Oh, edit and edit and edit and edit usually. You know, every once in a while you have something that, that you just let be. Um, but yeah, I, I'm, I'm a tinkerer and um, I, I, it's really funny because I, I teach undergrads and grads. Um, and one of the first lessons I, I teach them is make a mess, make a mess, teach yourself it's okay to make a mess um, because they find that really difficult. They, they want everything to be perfect the first time. And I'm like, well, you know, that's really no fun. And <laughs> remember like when you were a child and you took a crayon and went <clears throat> until the crayon broke and you were coloring um, and with no regard for lines and things. Um, so I, that's kind of my writing process. And that's kind of what I, I try to pass on to, to my people, um, is that, that there is joy in that. Like you have something that happens and it strikes you a particular way. And then you start to make a mess and then you go back into it. You know, I was, I'm very jealous of visual artists or sculptors because they have fun things to play with. Um, but for me, like words, you go back in and you sculpt and, and you sort of try to try to find out why that particular moment or why that particular image stuck with you. Um, and, and that for me is really fun, but I think a lot of things are fun that other people don't think are fun. So <laughs> I don't know. Nancy, what's your process? Um, I, I agree with you. I edit, edit, edit. But I think what I've learned is that I have certain body rhythms, biological rhythms that help or hinder the process. So rather than fighting it, I allow myself to give in. And what that means is for putting something down on paper uh, that's late at night where I feel I have the whole night ahead of me, no one's gonna interrupt me and I have to feel like nothing's gonna come of it. I'm just gonna sit here, I'm exhausted. I'm just gonna write something, whatever comes. It's not gonna be any good, who knows. And in the morning, that's when I can really evaluate how what I wrote the night before is. And sometimes it's like, oh, I wrote that. And most of the time it's like, oh my gosh, I wrote that. Okay, well, let's try again. And then I do a lot of thinking. So everybody, um, my husband knows that, you know, I'm thinking first thing in the morning about things and I'm thinking and writing things down during the day and I'll jot down things. And I won't even sit down at night to even start doing anything until I feel like the thinking has congealed enough to be able to have some kind of idea to sit down because I could just sit down and write, but that process would be very difficult. And it would be wrenching to try and come up with something when I had nothing in my head. So I find thinking about it for a week or two and then sitting down at night to see what happens and then looking in the morning and a lot of chocolate at night and chips really help. Uh, that's the process. Sometimes it, it's not great for my weight, but sometimes <laughs> the agonizing counteracts the, the chocolate. I think we all have a, a process of how we do it. It took 20 years to write an infusion of violence. So I thought for the next manuscript that I didn't want to spend 20 years doing that. And the pandemic was perfect. I didn't leave the house. 
I was here for a year and a half, had lots of time to think and lots of time to put things down. And so it turned out to be pretty productive. For you, Lori, how has the pandemic impacted your writing process and your writing? Oh my, um, I was, I was oh. loving what you were saying too about thinking. And I was like thinking about Maya Angelou who like gave me the greatest excuse ever because she said, napping is part of the writer's work, right? So we nap. <laughs> And, you know, I'm not, I'm not napping. I am working. I am working here. Um, so lots of napping during the pandemic whenever I could. Um, but, you know, you know I, I had a really hard time reading during the pandemic, which really bothered me because part of my process is to read a lot and write, you know, sort of, simul you know, together. Those are really important processes for me. Um, and I had a hard time focusing but I was able to, to write, um, but I saw that my writing changed a lot. Um, and it, I allowed myself not only to make a mess, but to just um, sort of ramble on in ways that I would normally have cut back. Um, almost as if it's like, I've got to, you know, <laughs> like not to be dark, but it's like, if the world's ending, I've only got this much time. So let's all get it out. And that's how um, things started to come out for me. Um, yeah. And I, I don't, I don't know, you know, the, the time of the pandemic, the time that it offered, like everyone else who's not a writer or not a particularly kind of solitary artist was like, oh, this is terrible. And I'm like, this is how we do. This is our thing. You know, we love this. Um, but I, I did, I, I missed people. I missed that that input, the focus. Um, and I, I was, again, I talk about teaching a lot because I spend so much time of my life doing that. But today my students taught me a new verb and it was um, people. They use people as a verb. I, I'm having a hard time peopling. I can't people anymore. I'm really struggling with people-ling. Um, they also taught me another word called spuddling which means being very busy, but accomplishing nothing. Um, <laughs> so I'm spuddling and peopling. Um, I think those are sort of the, the residual effects of the pandemic, um, which doesn't have a lot to do with writing, but everything has to do with writing, right? So, yeah. Does that answer your question? <laughs> you guys perfectly anticipated the questions that people were already putting in the chat. So good going. Let me tell you what the next one is. Hold on. I'm trying to pull up the chat for you. Um, for Nancy, your poems are in painful and heavy moments are so tender. How are you able to balance soft language with such potentially traumatic events? Well, that question is uh, a good one in that that's what brought me to poetry was I had traumatic events before the cancer. And so my way of coping, 20 years of coping, was finally to write and I wasn't a writer. And I took a class or two at the writer center and then found a mentor and she passed me along to another mentor and I, I learned quickly how to write. And um, I learned from the get-go that you can't have sentimental writing. No one's gonna wanna read that. I learned how you needed balance with it. So if it's just so oh, this horrible thing happened and I have cancer and I have chemo and I have radiation, woe is me, that doesn't make for good poetry, though it makes for catharsis. I'm a counselor by heart um, and, and career. So I understood, I tried to understand for myself, what, why was I writing? And, um, and the answer was that I did want to write poetry. I wanted to write poetry that could be appreciated um, for its art and its craft, as well as what it was saying. And so I, I thank you for that, that compliment about those, those words. I try to find words that do more than just be themselves. They have that, that little, <clears throat> Laurie and I seem to be dark poets. And we, we see that side. Uh, we may have children chirping through our, our poems, um, but my words are chosen one for the sound pattern so that I have something uh, lyric that's foremost in my mind, but also to have a word 
that has a double meaning. So it can be just an innocuous little word, but if you look at the full context of what we're talking about in this poem, I want it to be chilling. And yet they're, they're maybe deceptively calming words and um, tender words, but they're dealing with heavy moments of traumatic, traumatic events. And for me, writing was a response to trauma. That is why I explicitly decided to write poetry. And then because it seemed to work when the second trauma happened, um, I found that writing through that, but learn, but, but applying good poetry technique or, you know, rules are rules, but then you break them, but you need to know the rules and then you decide to break them and do what you want with them. And so by this second trauma, I was able to, um, to write a poem a week during pandemic, a poem a week, a, a lot is, can be said for just not peopling. If I can jump in and just say to Nancy, I, I want to thank you so much. Um, so right before the pandemic, I had a little, you know, adventure with cancer myself for a, about a year. And it, I love the way that you write through it. And I love the way that you capture, there, there's humor still in, in your work. And there's, I mean, the half-life, just even playing with the idea of half-life. I didn't have to have radiation, but um, the way that you write that is so beautiful and haunting, but also playful. Like, how can you be playful with cancer? <laughs> um, I, I love that because I think you're hitting like all the different ranges of human emotion in, in your work. And that's something really, really beautiful. And I think, um, you know, sometimes when we write trauma, it's like the, the danger is always to be self-indulgent. And I feel like you're always reaching out like um, in a way, like for, Mar for me, Mary Oliver does that as well. It's always reaching out to the, to the reader, reaching out to someone else um, who's gone through that too. So, so thank you. And thank you for sharing that information with, with me and, and the audience. And uh, my hope is that it resonates for my readers. And my hope is it doesn't scare them so much that they won't read it. And so I want to make it in a palatable form. And it, it, in counseling 101, we talk about the reframing. And so if you tell yourself as I was in the start, oh my gosh, this cancer nightmare debacle, I, I would refer to it like that. And somewhere along the way, someone told me the cancer experience because our self-talk changes how we feel. And if we, even though it may have been that, if you what you tell yourself about it while you're going through it makes you continue to go through it and, and be as okay as you can be. And, and also through your writing, you make it less lonely. So, you know, it's a very lonely thing. The, the, one, the one word I hate about cancer is journey. <laughs> so I like experience a lot. That's really good. And I hate the war, the cancer battle and the fight. Oh, and, oh uh, yeah. I, oh. Not having had cancer, but having had a different disease. And please, if one more person told me if I only ate right, this wouldn't have happened. You know, I little gun just for them. Right. Um, <laughs> but I wanted to ask you another question that I feel like um, we're kind of segging into because you both write about things that really happened to you. And Lori had in her poem, the Hemingway says he didn't mind her version of truth. So yes, these things happened, but you're talking to your readers in the context of a poem. Um, so how is it truth and how is it not truth? We're like both waiting for each other to start. Right, go ahead. You're, you're the memoir person. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's, that's the thing. So I come from a journalism background. I come, you know, and I came to memoir sort of after poetry. Um, it's very funny. So undergraduate school, I went to school for journalism because I grew up working class in Trafford. Um, and I couldn't dare tell anyone I wanted to be a writer because I would be beaten and thrown out of town. Um, so I was going to be a journalist, which is a job, right? So that's, that's a good thing. 
And then later on, years later, someone said, oh, you can go to graduate school for poetry and they'll pay to do, for you to do this. And I was like, no, that's not a thing, you know, <laughs> and, and it was. And so I went to graduate school for poetry, which again, I wasn't very open about talking about that with people that I grew up with or my family. Um, and then years down the line, I realized uh, memoir was sort of this combination of poetry and journalism, right? So I started writing memoir or what I thought at the time were poems that wouldn't behave. They just started to stretch out across the page. And I was like, this is not good. They need to get back and behave themselves. And, and they wouldn't. So I started writing memoir. Um, but then I go back and forth now between the genres. And I, I always joke, um, my husband is multi-genre as well, and he, but he's, he's a, a very good fiction writer, and which is a lie, by the way. Fiction writers always have truth in their work. <laughs> um, you can always see yourself. Um, but I always say, I don't have much imagination. Um, I, really, I really do take from the world um, in very, 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 like, direct ways. And so in my poems, I really, they're really reportage. Um, I know lots of poets will say, well, the eye is not me, or this isn't, or I took liberties here. I, I really don't. Um, I'm really interested. And that's the journalist to me. I'm really interested in what the world has to offer because the world's very weird by itself. Um, so if I'm writing about the roadkill situation. I actually did kill this poor raccoon and it was like right by my house. And I literally had to see it every day. <laughs> so, you know, it's like, it's very literally true. Um, so, and, and I know that's, uh, you know, I, I should be more artful maybe, um, but I'm not. And, and, and so that's why I have two failed novels because I have a really hard time making stuff up. And I'm, I'm with you too. Um, uh, and I started writing memoir now. So my poems were misbehaving. And so I've, I've written lots of these pieces. And it's an expanded version of what I can only say with a sound pattern and a certain number of words in the line. And, um, and, and then as far as truth, it's all true. Um, because one, I think when you when you make it up, I'm not that creative that I can make up things that sound like they're true and they're not. Um, and I, I think there's an organic quality that's easier to do if you're just telling the truth and then it flows organically one experience from the other, um, trying to make that up and make it sound organic. Uh, do I like putting my whole life out on display in a book. I, I figure not too many people are gonna read it anyway. And who's gonna read that fifth poem and in, in, in they're buried in there. Um, they, they'll get the book, they'll, they'll say they like it, but did they really read it? Um, so I put so much of myself, sometimes I worry that I'll run out of things to say, but I keep having bad things happen. Um, so I, I seem pretty good about that and good things because it's okay to write about good things too. But sometimes I have to will myself to write a, a, a poem with joy in it. And that's a very, the Sturgeon poem is very unusual for me because I'm just attracted by something dark that happened and then I'm going to riff off of that and write all about that. Um, but you need the, the light to set off the dark and vice versa. Um, now, somebody else asked me to ask both of you how you arrive at your titles. So for me, the poem An Infusion of Violets was written in Taos. And my husband and I took a course with um, Valerie Martinez called the, the I guess, the, the the, the poem, that centrifugal poem that went out because my poems always go in. And I don't take a lot of courses and a lot of workshops and this was a while back, but I took it and she was having us open up to, to get out of our comfort zone and really look at the poem in a wild way. And so I came up with this poem about when one of my students, I was writing school counselor log poems and I did invent the student 
my student had real things happen and I added extra things. Um, his skull was cracked and there were stitches and he was a part of a gang. Uh, that part was true, but I threw in he had HIV. And then I imagined him lying in the grass with, with an infusion of violets filling his cavity of his, his skeleton and how I want to save him because I'm a counselor, I want to do that. And I pick up his, his, his skull, but it falls apart like a sugar skull. And that was pretty wild for me. And then um, when it came to writing the book, maybe that's why I couldn't write it for 20 years because there was nothing really to link it. Yeah, what goes through us like tea. I drink a lot of green tea, okay. Um, uh, love comes, stays, and then leaves. Um, so when the chemo happened, there was that infusion and that cemented the book and gave it a theme that held together. And then it was clear, having written the infusion of violence, it had nothing to do with chemo, but it became the title of the book. How about you, Laurie? Well, I, I steal from Hemingway every chance I can get. <laughs> so um, how do you like now, gentlemen, is a line um, that he said repeatedly in a in a profile that Lillian Ross wrote of him um, that I actually mentioned in, in this book. Um, you know, and he and he would like box and say, how do you like it now, gentlemen, you know, over and over again. And he was kind of it was older um, when she uh, did this profile and the profile was really controversial because it was like, how dare you make Hemingway seem vulnerable or weak or um, and, and he's just always been, you know, we all have touchstones as writers and I have a billion of them, but he's always like my go to. Um, and I adore him. And I love when Lillian Ross was working on this profile, he told her, you know, don't worry about it. Just write whatever your truth is. Just write it. I don't care what you say about me. Um, and that seems so brave. And she did, you know, and he didn't look like, you know, I mean, he had this image in the media that was not who he was as a person at all. Um, but I, I love that line. And I, I love the playfulness and the vulnerability and, um, the the tragic way that line comes across in in her profile too um so yeah so I stole it I guess <laughs> it's the best form of flattery um we are cruising up on our seven thirty end time does anyone else wanna oh there's one more question let me find it hold on This is for both Lori and Nancy. Have you ever gone back to a poem you wrote months or years ago and completely redid it? Lori? Yes. <laughs> so I, I, I had this poem, is it was years ago, you know, and it was published, whatever, right? And I just realized it, it was so, it wasn't artificial. I mean, it was, it was true, but it was only the surface of the poem, right? It was only this kind of part of the, the experience that I felt comfortable talking about. And I was like, I'm going to blow this up. And I did. And I, I write long poems now, like these long narratives, but I didn't before. And, and that poem, actually, it started out like it was about very tidy, <laughs> very tidy poem. And it ended up being like a six page sprawling narrative um, about, you know, I, I mean, all sorts, all sorts of things. Um, the original poem was, was basically about losing virginity, right, which is always a great subject to write about. Um, but it was very, you know, but the, the poem that came out of it was all about like entering the world and like being, you know, so it, it surprised me where it went. And it was the first time I allowed myself just to just, you know, sort of follow the bouncing ball and see where this might really want to go. And that was awesome. I love that. And so sometimes even now, if I'm, you know, sort of in a, I don't believe in writer's block, I just get lazy. Um, so 
sometimes I will go back to something, an, an essay or a poem that I'm not happy with for whatever reason, and I'll rework it and just ch- let it blow up like that. And it's really fun, um, as much fun as writing can ever be, because I'd almost rather dust than write. But um, dusting is weird. <laughs> um, it's just endless, right? Um, but but I love that that the you know you need a little time maybe to be able to let go like that but when it happens it's really really wonderful so I'm not very precious with with anything you know that that I I do not just with poems but probably in life you know everything can always have a redo or most things <laughs> not all things but how about you Nancy I, I am with you that redoing um, the ones that I go back to after a month or so are ones that are recent usually and I put aside because it wasn't going anywhere and I couldn't get that 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 way into it to make it take off where I wanted to and sometimes just having the time away from it maybe it didn't know what it was about that's the biggest thing you put on paper and it's clear it's just not a finished poem and you want it to be finished so badly but it's not and maybe all of a sudden the answer comes maybe what you read somewhere else maybe you steal a quote from somewhere else to to find to help the poem find its way um so those are the recent ones the ones that are years old i still keep all my drafts just in case they might turn into something and uh i i keep them up on a a pile in my study a couple of loose leaves there um and sometimes when it's a friday night and i'm my mind has to be cleared so I can't have grading on my mind for my students and I can't have something I have to do for someone else. I promise to. So the mind has to be clear. And then if nothing's there to write about, I may look to see what I've started and hasn't gone anywhere and then see if that special way to get in occurs. And then we're not the same people who wrote that years ago as we are today. And our, and our sense of what a good poem is evolves I'm not going to sit here and say well you know I I have written the same way for decades and this is you know this is what it is Uh, maybe having come to writing a little later in life makes me more open to to understand that um, I can't know everything and I'm still still bringing into me something that is going to um, have me anything that's going to help me to look at something with fresh eyes and, and find a way in to then turn it into something that the now me is, is proud of is, uh, is going to be beneficial. If I could add like one more thing to that too, is like, I think I love that idea. Like, you know, and as we come to things older and we, our ideas of what, <laughs> what a poem is or, or what, good writing is evolve, you know, I think Hemingway, again, here we go. I have this line, here's this line, you know, um, in Movable Feast, you know, write one true sentence and then write another. And I think when I go into revision, I call myself on my own BS. Um, it's like, oh, that's a pretty sentence. Oh, people like that. But is it true? Is it really true? Like, and I, I love hearing that voice in my head that says, you know, let's let's really dig at that. Like, what's the real truth here? You know? Um, and that's like always this kind of challenge and it evolves like as, as we evolve, right. Our idea of what it, you know, what kind of truth are we willing to, to, to get to and how brave are we and how courageous and the older we get, the more courageous again, it sort of goes back to, I'm not afraid of spiders anymore. I mean, if a tarantula showed up in my bed, I would still be upset, but you know, it's like you get, to this place as a writer and as a human where you don't tolerate your own BS, let alone, let alone other people's. You really want to have real talk on the page and off. I think that's Laura, you just reminded me that one of my friends likes to say cancer cures the fear of flying. And I think there's no more questions. So I'm going to hand this off to Shailene. Okay, thank you um, so much. Thank you, um, 
everyone for your questions. Those are great questions. I feel there was so much wisdom and honesty and um, just um, wonderful references incorporated into that Q&A and um, the readings were lovely. So, um, so now um, it's my role to um, thank everyone and say goodbye. So I want to thank all of um, the participants in this evening's event, Lori Chakila, Nancy Naomi Carlson, Dorit Carroll, Clarinda Harris, uh, everyone at Brickhouse Books, really, um, the Ivy Bookshop. And we also want to thank our American Sign Language interpreter, Alyssa, for helping us make this event accessible. And I want to thank everyone who made time to attend this event this evening. Um, Sophia has posted a, an evaluation link in the chat and the comments, and we'd love if you'd take a moment to fill that out. Um, have a wonderful rest of your evening, take care and stay safe. This podcast is a production of the Enoch Pratt Free Library and the Maryland State Library Resource Center. For more information and to access more library resources, please visit prattlibrary.org.